If you would, uh, go ahead and turn to chapter 10 of Revelation. And uh, I would usually be having a hand or a handless uh, mic on me, but I do not have that. It's broken today, so uh, bear with me if I have to shuffle my notes around and it gets a little um, interesting. But go ahead and turn to Revelation 10. We'll be in Revelation 10 through 11. Well, in 2015... You may remember the world was forced to stare into unthinkable and horrendous evil. After the destabilization of Libya, ISIS took a foothold. And one of their main goals is jihad against God and his church. In one of the most infamous moments of persecution, they publicly killed on a beach 21 Coptic Christians and another Christian from Ghana. They posted this publicly. They reveled in it. And they titled the video, they took a video of it, and they titled the video, A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross. A Message Signed with Blood to the Nation of the Cross. Years later, a man named Martin Mosbach went into Libya and spent time with the families of those who had been killed, getting to know them, being around them. And then after having done that and written a book, he was interviewed, and the interviewer asked him a question. So what did you find there when you were with the people? Mosbach replied, I found a completely different point of view of martyrdom. No lamentation, no mourning, no pity, but instead pride and happiness. This was not seen as an injustice or an incident that should not have happened. On the contrary, mothers, widows, brothers, and fathers all spoke the same language. Their paintings and photographs showed the killed ones with royal crowns on their heads. It was all completely liturgical. They were like priests who had given their lives through this act of faith. There was really the presence of the supernatural in the lives of these very simple people who were not mystics at all. These were people with very simple theologies, but it was real theology. Friends, we need a simple and real theology if we are going to face this bittersweet world and all the sufferings we are to endure before Jesus comes back, before the final resurrection. And this is why we have chapters 10 and 11 of Revelation. This is why we need the Word of God. We took a break in a Revelation series last week. Before that, Mike covered chapters 8 and 9 of Revelation. In those chapters, we saw that God is going to bring final judgment in response to the prayers of the saints. And these are revealed in seven trumpet judgments. The heat is ratcheted up as we go on. However, we actually stopped, you may not have caught this, but we actually stopped before the seventh trumpet. And that's because it takes a detour in the vision before we hit the seventh trumpet. As the camera angle zooms in, we'll see this, that God's plan of redemption and judgment is bittersweet. Bitter because it will be painful, but sweet because it ends in the vindication of the righteous. Right? It's bitter because it will be painful, 
but sweet because it ends in the vindication of the righteous. So read chapter 10 with me. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice, like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders sounded, had sounded, it was about to, he was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the day of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servant, the prophets." Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me this little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So point number one, God's bittersweet plan, if you're taking notes. God's bittersweet plan. Immediately in chapter 10, we're introduced to an awesome sight. A giant angel, a messenger from God representing God, is coming to deliver the scroll. Look at the descriptors. Verses one, he's wrapped in a cloud. There's a rainbow over his head. His face is like sun, legs like pillars of fire. His voice sounds like a roaring lion. He's standing on the land and on the sea, implying dominion over creation. And he has the scroll. If you've been walking with us through Revelation, we've seen a scroll before in chapter five. We have the awesome vision of Jesus taking the scroll from the Father which represents God's plan of judgment and redemption. And most likely this is the same scroll. It's mentioned as being little, but that is more than likely because the angel is so big, a lot of the expanse of the angel. And if you're seeing similarities in this angel to who we've seen about God throughout Revelation, uh, I think we're right to see those things. Uh, Many commentators have noted that this might be Jesus himself being an angel delivering the scroll. But either way, what is clear is this angel represents and is an ambassador for God, and he is on a mission. This begins with a heavenly conversation, then an oath, and finally, a passing on of the scroll. So throughout Revelation, there is judgment through seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And here we have this heavenly conversation between this angel in heaven, and there's seven peals of thunder, which likely represent judgment as well. However, what's unique is we don't actually know what they mean. We don't hear what they are. John is told not to tell the reader. Look at verse 4. 
And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Do not write it down. The sealing of the thunders, not letting them be known, is pointing us actually back. Again, we have to go back to the Old Testament, to the palette of the Old Testament, to Daniel chapter 12, where the same command is given to Daniel to seal up a revelation. G.K. Beale, who we've also used many times, uh, is a helpful author and theologian. He writes, the sealing in Daniel 12 referred partly to keeping hidden from Daniel and others how prophecy was to be fulfilled. John, like Daniel, receives revelation, but unlike Daniel, he understands it. The definite article with thunders may imply that the thunders are known to him, perhaps from an understanding of Psalm 29. The fact that he is about to record the revelation of thunders also suggests that he understands their significance to some degree. Nevertheless, this is key, like Daniel, he is still not to make it known to his readers. Friends, we need to get the main point here. God is telling us there is mystery to his plan of redemption and judgment. In this moment, John looks us in the eye. God looks us in the eye through John and says, there are aspects and things about my plan that will be mysterious, right? Even in the middle of the book of Revelation revealing, God is saying there are things that are his to know and his to know only. Friends, we need a real theology, a simple theology of mystery that God has not revealed all things to us, right? What day is God coming back? What exactly will the experience of the scorpions and the lion demonic things in chapter 9 be like? How exactly chronologically is this all going to unfold in history? Why did those 20 Christians in Libya have to die? Why do even now all the Christians all over or Christians all over the world have to be hunted down like animals? Why did I have to get fired from my job when I did nothing wrong? Why did my friend have to slander me at school? Friends, to all of those, we can say we don't know the details, right? There is mystery. There is mystery to how God has planned it. Yes, we have theology and rocks to stand on in God's word. Of We know God's sovereignty and his plan. And we have all these awesome truths. And we must also stand on the reality that there is mystery. We don't know, but God does. We don't know, what God, but God does. However, what we can be sure of is that all this brokenness will be mended. All will be made right. All the mysteries around suffering will cease because there will be no more suffering. Look at verses 5 through 7. And the angel on whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay but that in the day of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servant, the prophets. And again, this points us back to Daniel chapter 12 with some differences. 
Daniel 12, an angel swears that there will be a season of suffering before the final judgment is over. The angel says this in chapter 12. Time, times, and and half a time that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Here, however, the angel swears that there will be no delay at the seventh trumpet. This is the final moment when that trumpet sounds. This is when the finale is finished. This is when the gospel, the mystery of God is fully fulfilled. The suffering church suffers no longer. It's over. God reigns. Friends, there is a day when we will no longer ask, why, O Lord? And this is good news. This is good news. But until that time, we'll see that life will be bittersweet. Life will be bittersweet. Read again verses 8 through 11 with me. Then the voice that I heard from the heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in the mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. Again, the scroll from chapter 5, representing God's plan of redemption and judgment. Here it shows up again. And John, at the heavenly command, takes the scroll, just as he was told, and eats it. And it is sweet to his mouth, but bitter to his stomach. John, taking the scroll from the angel, refers on to the passing on of authority. Not the authority to enact it, but rather to proclaim it, right? He eats the scroll. He has the authority to proclaim God's plan of redemption and judgment. And it is bittersweet to John because of the realities of the plan. It's bittersweet to John because of the realities of the scroll. Bitter because it contains the persecution of the church, the rejection of the gospel by the world, and the corresponding judgment of God. Sweet because of God's justice his presence with and for his people, his making all things right and his vindication of his people. And as we go on, we'll see this fleshed out. What does this look like? So point number two, God's suffering church in his presence and on mission. God's suffering church in his presence and on mission. Read chapters 11, 1 through 10 with me. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. 
They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and the tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Chapter 11 begins with an odd task, if you think about it. Like, what is going on? John is told to measure a temple, its altar, and the people within. Again, he's, this goes back to Ezekiel, where a similar task is given to the prophet. And throughout Revelation, the, the temple, as we'll see as we go on, is associated with or symbolic of the people of God in God's presence. The people of God in God's presence. And measuring implies intimate knowledge of them. He knows them. Everything has been counted. They are known and numbered. You and I, O Christian, are known and numbered. However, there is a reality. There is a reality that while they, the people of God, are spiritually safe and God is with them, God is with us, they and we are still called to suffer on the earth as we are on mission. See, the outer court is given to the nations to trample. Beale again writes, in Revelation 1 and 2, 11, 1 and 2, the temple of the church is being patterned after the cross of Christ, who is the true temple. Just as Christ suffered, so the church will suffer and appear defeated. Nevertheless, through it all, God's tabernacling presence will abide with believers and protect them from any contamination leading to eternal death. And this is confirmed as we read on. God's presence with his people in their suffering is teased out. The vision turns to two witnesses. And these two witnesses, again, more than likely represent the church. The olive trees can be traced back to Zechariah and represent royalty and priesthood. And the lampstands take us back to chapter one, if you remember, where the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And they, what do they do? They stand before the Lord of the earth, God's people in God's presence. And there is two of them, there's two witnesses, because it represents the Deuteronomic requirement that there must be two witnesses to testify, signaling the truthfulness of their witness. So you had to have two witnesses come before and stand before to accuse or to defend someone. And that was how it was to work in Deuteronomy. And the idea was this must be true. And if it's just one person, it's less trustworthy. So we must have two. So that is why there is two, right? There is truthfulness to what we proclaim. The gospel is truth. They witness the truth. What they proclaim is the truth, and as we see, this drives the world and all the forces of hell absolutely crazy. The world hates them for it. Verse 11 makes it clear, right? The ministry of the witnesses is a torment, is the word that is used, to those who dwell on the earth. It's a torment. 
Have you ever had a friend or acquaintance, maybe it's uh, someone at school, who they really want you to do something wrong? Like they just want you to be in on it, mischievous, and probably they know it's really wrong, but yet you refuse to do it. And what happens? They get mad, right? Or you just look at our culture and why is it that there's screaming and hatred towards those who say that something is wrong, that God made man and woman? There is no third category or anything beyond that. Why is there hatred towards those people that say that? What, why is there hatred towards that truth proclaimed? Why? Because it is truth. It testifies against them that their deeds are evil, right? When you get backlash because you won't give in to evil, people hate it. And that is what we see on steroids here. They hate it. They hate the people who deliver this message. They hate the people who deliver this truth. But we can also see God's presence with the witnesses as their enemies are judged and they perform signs. Read verses five and six. And the angel whom I saw, sorry, that was the wrong chapter, uh, five and six. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the water to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Now, it's not exactly clear what the symbolism concerning the miracles and the judgments here around the witnesses. I would say there's some mystery, some mystery. But two things are very clear. Right? God is empowering his people in the face of fierce opposition, judging their opponents. God is empowering his people and will empower his people in the face of fierce opposition, and he will judge the church's opponents, those who reject and hate the church. And they will do all this until right, God will support them, until it is time to take them home. Look at verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This dragon symbolizing Satan, he, he will be the what we zoom up on in chapter 12 next week. Next week. He comes after the church. And after the right time, after enough suffering has happened, after enough rejection of the gospel by the world, rejection of the church by the world, God will allow Satan to seemingly defeat the church, right? The witnesses have run their race. They've remained faithful. God has sustained them and empowered them. Their suffering is only for a season. There will be a day when the church will seem to be defeated. There will be a day. And then there will be a glorious day beyond that. But our day of suffering are numbered, Throughout the chapter, we see that this season of persecution and suffering has its days numbered. This symbolic time frame is listed in several ways. You'll see it throughout this chapter. 42 months or 1,260 days. And in Daniel, it's a time, time, and times a half. All referring to the same thing. The church age, when the church will endure suffering and persecution. But notice the finality of that. That God has numbered those days. 
He will not endure the suffering of his people forever. God does not do this flippantly. It may be a mystery to us and to how exactly long is that period, what's going on, but it is not to God. Know this, friends. God has numbered the days of the suffering of his church. God cares for his church. Jesus died for his church, and they will not be trampled on forever. But notice the depravity and the hardness of the persecutors. Look at verses 8 through 10. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them. They will make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Catch that? The dying world throws a celebration at the apparent defeat of the witnesses. They're even exchanging gifts. For them, they have won the lottery. This is their day of celebration. The church seems to have been crushed. They gloat over this. If the church is defeated, so is their message. They rejoice at the thought that the church is wrong. You know, you think here of Aslan when Aslan is killed and the great witch is crying out in exclamation and gloating over the reality that he died. The, the great cat is dead. There's excitement and rejoicing. That is what's going on. This is the hardness of the world towards the gospel and the church. And the world not dare put them in the grave like they did their Lord. They knew what happened then. Rather, they gaze at them. They gaze at the dead bodies, yearning that they're truly defeated, truly crushed, truly dead. They knew something. Just as if Jesus did not raise from the dead, our faith is futile. As Paul says, if we are not raised from the dead with Christ, then our faith is futile as well. If the church is truly defeated by persecution and death, then our whole lives are wasted. Our whole lives are pointless. The gospel is not true. Our witness is merely the witness of a fanatic religious people group who trusted a lie. And if that's true, then the world is off the hook. This is why they party. They think they're off the hook. This is why ISIS gloated over the murder of the 21 Christians. See, we've, we've killed them. They're dead. But their rejoicing will not last long. Their rejoicing will not last long. God will vindicate his people and their testimony. Point number three, God's vindication of his people. God's vindication of his people. Verses 11 through 19. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet. And great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in that earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. 
The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Soon to come. Verse 15. Then the seventh, uh, seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but their wrath came in the time for the dead to be judged and for the rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen with his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. So friends, after only a short time, three and a half days, God raises them from the dead, the witnesses from the dead, and calls them to himself, right? Come up and also brings about judgment, right? Then judge the people who had killed them. Many people die from an earthquake and the rest are petrified. And this is followed up in the vision by the ultimate vindication, the moment the mystery of the gospel is fully made known and experienced as was forecasted in chapter 10, but we must remember, Revelation is not chronological. There's often recapitulation. That's a big word we've used. It means seeing the same thing from different angles, a repetition of the same events. In fact, it's, it's kind of hard to follow. You probably felt that. It's hard to follow what happens, right? They're raised. The witnesses are raised from the dead, verse 11. It mentions a second woe and a third woe to come, verse 14. And then the trumpet is blown, verse 15. And then, bam, the elders are representing who represent God's people are in the throne and God's kingdom has come and the judgment has already been poured out. We mustn't read too much into the sequence, but, but what is God getting at? Friends, God is getting at the triumph of his vindication. Friends, the days of suffering, death, and persecution are numbered for the church. God has appointed a day where all the mysteries of the gospel will be fulfilled and it will be glorious. God will reign and make all things right. This is the sweetness of the scroll. There will be a day, friends, when God's judgment and the act of his restoring all things will be past tense. Read verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. This is the moment when all the prayers of the saints, think of Jesus saying, teaching us to pray your kingdom come Lord. All those prayers have been answered. There will be no praying for God's kingdom to come. It has come. The great merge has happened. God's kingdom is now on earth that we long for. It. And this will be filled out in chapter one. We see the new Jerusalem. And as it goes on, we get a glimpse into what has happened through the elders worshiping, verses 17 and 18. Just noting a couple of things, right? Judgment on the wicked has occurred fully and 
finally, but your wrath came, verse 18, and the time for the dead to be judged. It's done. It's over. I love this in verse 18. He destroyed, right, for destroying the destroyers of the earth. God destroys the destroyers of the earth. And then a second thing, right, rewards have been handed out. Verse 18, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, God will reward his people. God will reward his people. And we will even speak differently about God. There's, if you, I don't know if you caught it in verse 17. We give thanks to you, O Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. What's missing there? We've seen this refrain early in Revelation. Yeah, who was and is and what? Is to come, but it's not there. It's left out. This is not speaking of his character changing, but this is owing to the reality that God is present. There is no looking forward to anything. God is fully and finally with his people for all time. We will have no more longings for something future. God is present. This is seen in the second half of the verse. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. You have taken, you are reigning. Enjoyment of God for all eternity will always be in the present. Friends, what Isis got right is that we are a nation of the cross. But what they were missing on that day, what the world is missing, is that we are also a nation of the resurrection. Because we have died with Christ, we will suffer with him on this earth, and it will get worse and worse as the day draws near, but we will rise again. We don't bask in death for death's sake. The family of those who were martyred do not bask in death. Rather, they had a very simple and real theology. What was it? They knew there is a glorious resurrection. They knew there was a glorious resurrection. They knew that Jesus would vindicate those men. They knew that Jesus would make all things right. They knew their, the days of their suffering are numbered. So let me pose a couple applications, two applications from this text. First, friends, we must be prepared for suffering and persecution. Jesus promised it. Jesus promised that. And the church that this was written to, the early church, was experiencing it. They were in the throes of persecution. In John 15, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. In union with Christ, friends, we should expect persecution and suffering. We need a simple and real theology of suffering. So friends, do you have one? Is suffering part of your expectation for this life? Or has the Christian American view that God is simply after your comfort your pleasures filled the gap. 
I can guarantee you that the families of those Coptic Christians did not struggle with that. And the second question then, okay, if we're supposed, if we're called to have a theology of suffering, that God is sovereignly ordaining our suffering, allowing our suffering, how are you preparing for suffering? And I know that poses lots of questions. How do I do that? You know, we've probably all asked the question, if, what will I do when I'm faced with, if, if someone held a gun to my head and said, deny Christ, what would I do? Or if they held a gun to my family, what would I do? How do we, how do we prepare for something like that? The author, Sinclair Ferguson, helpfully writes, we are equipped to cope with the critical of life, critical events of life, not by a decision we make in the moment of crisis, Rather, the decisions we make on such occasions are the fruits of a habit of a lifetime. It is by sowing a character, according to the proverb, that we reap a destiny. So how do you walk with the Lord when the wreck you dread happens and people you love die? How do you walk with the Lord when financial disaster hits and all your savings are lost? How do you walk with the Lord when someone is threatening to kill you for your faith? It's simple. It's simple and real. You walk with the Lord now. You walk with the Lord now, knowing that he, as he promised, will be with you always until the end of the age. You dive into scriptures on suffering now. You throw your life on the rock that cannot be moved now. You abide in a love that suffering cannot take away now. Second application. Does your coming vindication in Christ in his return, fuel, mission, and hope. I'll repeat that. Does your coming vindication in Christ in his return fuel, mission, and hope? Friends, we preach a gospel that is offensive to the world. Our lives, if we're living out the gospel, is offensive to the dying world. Paul says that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. And as the world grows darker, as the world grows darker, that contrast we become all the more bright, all the more vibrant. But the hope of resurrection should propel us to reckless abandon in mission. That's what's going on. The witnesses know whose they are. They stand before God. They aren't afraid of persecution. They're being faithful to witness. Those who died on the beach in Libya are faithful until the end. Reckless abandon in mission. How much more should we battle our own fears and anxieties around the mission of God that God has given us? To live out the gospel in our workplace, to live out the gospel in our school, to preach the gospel to those around us. Friends, we can have a reckless abandoned mission knowing that God is coming, making all things right. Does it fuel mission? Is his coming return real to my heart now? And then second, does Christ's return produce hope in my heart? Does it produce hope? If you want to know if the future return of Christ and our resurrection is real to you, ask yourself, do I experience hope at that thought? Does my heart yearn? When we sing songs about when we see your face, does my heart want that day? 
because I am sure I'm steadied upon God's word that that day is coming, that my days of suffering are numbered and he is coming. Does the hope of the resurrection penetrate your suffering, whatever it may be, your physical suffering, spiritual attacks? Does it penetrate the day-to-day mundane of life at school? Is it on your lips, Lord, come, Lord, come? Or are we not as concerned about our future home because we're too comfortable in the home we live in? Are we so comfortable with this life, free from persecution as a whole because we're in America, that we realize that this is not our hope, this is not our home? Friends, this life will be bitter at times. There will be suffering we need a real and simple theology of suffering. Band, you guys can come up. We need a real and present and simple theology of suffering, God's vindication, God's return. And friends, that day will be so sweet. That day will be so sweet. He will return. He will make all things right. And so as the band comes up, just meditate on his return. We're going to sing a song, More Than Conquerors, because that's who we are, right? We're crushed, but not defeated. We're pushed down, but not destroyed. Even if our lives are taken on the mission field or in our neighborhood, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us because We know that there is a resurrection of the dead. There's a vindication of the righteous. There is a return of our King. And so we look forward to that day. We long for that day and we rejoice in it even now. Let's sing together.